Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Aaron Han, who is a foreign language lecturer from Fukuoka University. And the paper that we're going to be speaking about is Uncovering the Ideologies of Internationalization in Lesson Plans Through Critical Discourse Analysis. How are you doing today, Aaron? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are things uh, over at Fukuoka University during uh, this COVID lockdown? Uh, we are doing a 100% uh, remote teaching. So um, I've been teaching from my home. And of course, as with everyone, it's been quite a challenge adapting and looking for new ways to still provide students useful opportunities to uh, learn. But definitely this semester is already going a lot smoother than the first semester. Well, that's good to know. Yes, I'm having the same kind of uh, situation myself. So I'm perhaps becoming too comfortable with it and going back into classrooms is going to be a bit tough. But uh, the paper covers two main areas that I'd like to speak to you about today, internationalization and critical discourse analysis. So my first question, just to set up the field for people who are not as familiar with it. What brought your interest to this field of study and this project in particular? Two main things uh, that led me to this uh, project. So my master's degree, which I got uh, in the US a while ago, was in the field of rhetoric and writing studies, which is basically the analysis of argument, but coming really out of the rhetorical and literary traditions. In When I did that, that uh, my master's work, I actually looked at teachers' professional discourse, um, although we didn't use the term discourse there, but trying to understand how when teachers talk to each other or talk to people outside of the field, how does what they're saying affect perceptions? And then later, after I came to Japan, the kind of thing that focused me on the particular target of my study um, really arose out of a relationship I had with a, a group called the Gender Awareness in Language Education. That's a subgroup for one of the big professional teaching organizations for language teachers in Japan. And we had some online discussions about uh, both a, a, a blog post that was very troublesome, arguably misogynistic, and then also an article that Jout had published that had similar problems. And one of the big things that kept coming up for us was that it matters how teachers talk to each other. Um, right. And for me, that's always been the, the idea. You know, we, we have conversations with teachers in the staff room or at conferences or whatever. And we all know the teachers that spend a large portion of those conversations complaining about students or criticizing students. Right. And, you know, other teachers who have a very positive approach to students and, and you know, mm. trying to figure out what they need. And so I think that how we talk about that, whether that's in casual conversations or in professional writing matters. And so then this project, uh, which uh, is part of my doctoral research, uh, looks at it through the critical discourse analysis lens as a way of doing that same kind of analysis to understand what is it that teachers are really saying in their professional writing? So as critical discourse analysis, to kind of define that for people who are listening, it's looking at texts or looking at uh, situations where there are arguably subtexts that the person who is hearing them or saying them isn't really aware that they are demonstrating 
through the words they choose or the or the things that they talk about? Yes, it comes out of both out of cultural studies and linguistics and discourse analysis. Uh, the the idea that um, language is always a part of creating the world, um, and that we all experience the world through language. We, we are literally unable to experience the world without language. And that in many cases, the language we use, not as you said, not through our own control, shapes both what we ourselves think and what others think based upon what they hear or read us saying. An example of this might be the very first line of the abstract of the paper. The Japanese government has made kokusaika, questionably translated as internationalization, a cornerstone of all aspects of education. So I can I can critically analyze from that that you don't particularly agree that kokusaika is correctly or 100% accurately translated as internationalization in the Japanese context. That's definitely the case. I think that it is the true that when you read Japanese policy documents that the Japanese government has translated into English, they almost always translate it as internationalization. But uh, I follow the work of uh, Kayoko Hashimoto and Yuko Kubota, and they both have done what they sometimes call critical discourse analysis, or they have other terms for it. But they argue that if you look precisely at what the Japanese documents say, not only the main documents, but also all the ancillary documents and the commentary that goes along with it, that Kokusaika is not internationalization in the English sense. Um, Hashimoto even argues that it's better translated as Japanization, Mm. that the purpose of Kokusaika is to enable Japanese learners and Japanese citizens to successfully interact with the world, and this is primarily from a neoliberal economic perspective of gaining benefit for the country and companies, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that in every way they would retain their Japanese identity. And essentially, this actually goes back to several hundred years ago with the Japanese idea that learning foreign languages was essentially in danger of corrupting your real identity. Internationalization, how it has generally become to be defined in my field of study, is that it is separate from the idea of globalization. So internationalization would be a vertical integration from uh, a location or a business into the international arena, into the international space, but maintaining its uniqueness. And I think that might be true that other countries as well not it's this is certainly not just a Japanese situation no interpret internationalization in a way which and arguably is the correct way to approach it uh, benefits the country or the company best rather than globalization which uh, seems to be a bit more of a horizontal integration and a more it's more of a cultural than an economic phenomenon would you agree with that I would first say I'm I'm not quite as familiar with the distinction of the two terms in English to kind of confidently state that that division is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like when I've read internationalization in uh, at least English language teaching articles, it often has a cultural component and it often has a, right. a kind of personal component, like the idea of if you're internationally skilled or if you're internationally motivated it means you can personally communicate with other people and you can expand your horizon uh, and things like that and i think that 
um, Kokosanika very much does not want that. Right. Um, and that, so that's why there's sometimes confusion, I think, when people look at the Japanese government's efforts to encourage what they will call in English internationalization really doesn't include any sort of a, or should maybe more accurately say, intentionally excludes a personal or cultural connection. Right. So let's get into the balance between what is used in Japanese policy documents as kokusaika, as you say, mm. is translated as internationalization. And the concept that Hashimoto and Kubota also discuss, which is uh, Nihonjin Ron, which is, uh, I think, uh, again, questionably translated as Japanese-ness. It is, although it might be called, it might be better said as the study of Japanese-ness, mm -hmm. um, in the sense that it is attempting to identify what it means to be Japanese, and mm -hmm. specifically what it means to be Japanese, as opposed to what it means to be everything else, the, essentially the division of the world into two categories, those who are have, who have a Japanese identity and everything else which is away on the other side. That's very interesting because in an interview that's going to be published later, I've spoken to Dr. Bruce Lawrence and he was talking about the Korean perspective uh, and the idea of Han which is the historical struggles that Korean people have gone through to uh, maintain their independence and to gain security, and that nobody who isn't Korean can understand the concept of Han. So ironically, your name, uh, you can understand the concept of yes. being Han, um, right. but, you, but you cannot understand Han. And this is certainly a tool that is used, I don't know the Korean context at all, but I know a little bit in the Japanese context, this is a a modern creation. This, this idea uh, is not necessarily something that has a long history in Japan of there being a uniquely Japanese identity, but it serves a purpose, obviously. And, and we, of course, we see this, we see this in Americans and having American identity in other, other cultures as well. So I don't mean to say this is something that's uniquely Japanese, but definitely this division, um, it seems to be very important in uh, governmental policy. Well, this has come up before in the interview that I did with Sean uh, O'Dwyer about Confucianism and that mm. the Japanese adoption of Confucianism uh, was basically taken on fairly late and much later uh, than it was in, uh, well, certainly China, but other Asian countries as well. And it was redefined as kind of a Japanese form of Confucianism, which then rewrote the history that there had always been this unbroken line uh, of, on the chrysanthemum throne that mm. was then used as kind of legitimate to legitimize nationalism and then the industrialization uh, of their um, military. And then we, we all know where that ended up. And this so, all ends up being implicated in the way that the Japanese educational institutions and the government has interacted with foreign languages. For those outside Japan, it has been traditionally been the case that Japanese uh, have learned foreign languages primarily through what might loosely in English be called a grammar translation approach, but right. the, the idea that one would learn foreign languages by translating them to, into Japanese, and that in so doing, one actually learns to understand being Japanese better, um, that you learn foreign languages partially to understand your own identity. So that, um, that learning foreign languages can be done because of course there's a value, especially you know, during the Meiji period of acquiring the scientific and economic uh, uh, engineering knowledge. 
that they wanted that, uh, but that they could do it in a way that still kept a distance, so to speak. Again, this is not a unique thing to to Japan. I mean, China has gone through periods of learning English and then going back to uh, and then going to Russian, wanting to learn more of that the industrialization from Russia, and then readopting English again, as you say, as the the language of the language through which they could learn about foreign science, they could learn about foreign cultures, and they could enrich the culture of of their country through the use of a foreign language. What I wanted to ask you was, what is your perception of how these two concepts of kokusaika and, uh, and nihonjin-dong, kind of how do they balance each other? Uh, if we assume that uh, kokusaika is best understood, at least in part, as a combination of internationalization and Japanization, that would then make it fully compatible with a nihonjin-dong perspective. Right. There, uh, one of the things that Kubota talks about is that at the, um, I, I remember you were talking with Dr. Bradford, was it, mm-hmm. about uh, the course of study changes. If right. you look at those course of study changes, at the same time as they were implementing um, Japanese with English abilities, mm-hmm. first of all, it's important to note that was specifically English. It was not foreign language abilities. It was English abilities. Right. Um, and second, they were also at that same time adding in more requirements that students uh, study traditional Japanese um, sports. Um, mm-hmm. They added in the requirements that students do a flag raising ceremony on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so we saw the rise of this internationalization at the same time as the reinforcing of the Japanese national identity. Let's get into some of the specifics uh, of the paper and the study itself. So the paper that we're talking about is uh, uncovering the ideologies of internationalization in lesson plans through critical discourse analysis. So having dealt with the critical discourse analysis as as a definition and internationalization, let's take a look at the lesson plans that you were investigating and kind of what were your specific questions that led you through this uh, research to try and find out, to try and find a result? So um, this uh, paper that we're talking about was basically one component of my doctoral research. So uh, I basically started with the idea that I wanted to look at teachers' professional discourse. Uh, So specifically, not teachers talking to students, but teachers talking to other teachers. And I chose the lesson plan genre because a lesson plan, and especially the ones that I analyzed, is specifically an example of a teacher saying, here's what I think is good in language teaching, because this was a successful thing for me. If we look at those, we're able to get a, a look at the kind of teacher's underlying beliefs about what they think good language teaching is. Then I chose specifically the ones I looked at, which are um, they're called my share articles. These are uh, short articles. They're uh, 600 to 700 words. They're published by the Japan Association for Language Teaching, which is the largest association for foreign language teachers, or at least it's the largest one that is a majority non-Japanese membership. And that covers all ages from elementary school through university. I chose those because um, when you do critical discourse analysis, it's very, very important to understand the context that you are analyzing in. And so as a a doctoral project, as my first big foray into a serious analysis, 
I wanted to go with a, a focused set of data um, mm -hmm. instead of say, just looking at all uh, lesson plans that I could find by looking at specifically ones published here in Japan, I could then allow me to make the kinds of analyses that are, are talked about in this paper that connected up to educational policies here and the realities of teaching here. Right. And so the my share section of the language teacher is something that's, I'm guessing this is a voluntary thing. This is not something that's required of all members. It's It's people who are motivated to share. Yes, and, and actually that ends up, and it's not discussed in, in this paper at all, but it ends up being playing a role in my thesis. They're voluntary publications. People write them because they want to. But uh, I did surveys and discussions with both authors and the, the editors, mm -hmm. and a significant portion of the people who published did it for professional advancement. One thing that's a little bit odd here at the Japanese university level, unlike many countries, is that some universities will essentially count any publication as a publication, even though these are not peer reviewed, that can make a difference between getting a job and not getting a job. So sometimes people will publish in here because the turnaround time is very quick. Um, it's particularly good for that subset of teachers who say, I'm not a researcher, I'm a teacher, that they can still say something useful based upon their experience. And so that ends up creating an interesting tension in the kinds of articles and the kinds of things that people say in those articles. Well, let's get into the uh, the articles and uh, into uh, what they were saying. You note that uh, the lesson plans represent a portion of uh, Japanese university language teachers' professional discourse, and thus are an important part of the dis disciplinary tools that shape teachers' perspectives. So were you coming at this from the idea that the teachers who read these lesson plans would have their perspective of certain concepts changed by these uh, lesson plans? Yes, and both. The CDA tends to uh, approach the idea, we tend to use phrases like um, constructed by and represented in, mm -hmm. meaning when we're looking at discourse, we're looking at it for both what are kind of the, the hidden biases and ideologies that are there, but also how do those words, especially in a professional context like this, shape the perceptions of those who read them. And like in my case, I was looking at six years worth of articles. So it's not like I necessarily think that there's a particular reader out there who's sitting down and just reading through page after page. Right. But the idea is that if you are a teacher who's looking for lesson activities to use in your classroom and you turn to this great uh, resource that JALP provides, and it's actually even online and you can search for things that you want, you're going to see repeated over and over again, certain phrases, certain arguments, certain syntactic structures, and that that is going to have, at least on some level, either it shapes what you think or at the very minimum, it shapes what you think other teachers think. So for example, if you read a bunch of these articles and you think, oh, lots of these activities are teacher-centered, mm -hmm. even if you don't register this consciously, you would likely come away with a perspective that, okay, it's pretty normal in Japanese university classrooms to have a teacher-centered class. Mm -hmm. and even though if you look at, say, JELT's conference presentations or the research articles that they put out, 
they tend to promote a student-centered approach. But if you look at, again, the underlying professional discourse that forms more of the practical backbone, the theory is not matching up to the, the practice. It also comes down, I think, to perhaps the teacher's expectations of students and the people who are going to be in the classroom with them. Switching from, as we've spoken about, a fairly rigid grammar-oriented way of uh, teaching languages up through and including high school, it's possible that teachers who are submitting these lesson plans think that this might be the environment that the other teachers who are reading it are working in. But I think if that tends to perpetuate, then we're never going to get to a point where, you know, there is a truly student-centered approach to uh, Japanese university English language teaching. So uh, I can see I can see both sides of, uh, of what you're saying. Yeah, this um, is definitely the case where things get perpetuated like this. And then the next group of people, and again, it, a lot of it is complicated by the way people tend to become language teachers in Japan, which is not necessarily the same as if they would if they were being a language teacher in their home country. They tend to get a little bit more, in my opinion, strongly shaped by this kind of discourse. Right. I mean, you're probably what you're alluding to is either people coming over as assistant language teachers after graduation from their home country's undergraduate programs and being put into Japanese high schools. So they get to observe uh, these methods firsthand or coming over and working in language schools, which is what I did, and having a fairly regimented set of methodologies that you could actually employ uh, in the classroom and not many of them were particularly student-centered, I have to report. Right, yes, uh, this is ex exactly where this, this kind of process perpetuates it. And tying back into the specific findings of this paper, it ends up perpetuating perspectives on uh, what it means to be a speaker of English. Some people have, for example, argued that that approach to English teaching where so many people are brought over, for example, as ALTs, actually perpetuates among Japanese students the idea that foreigners speak English. My Japanese teacher can't quite speak English. That's why we have to bring this foreigner. Now, I'm not saying that that's actually what happens, but some, have, some people have argued that that may be one of the ancillary results of this kind of division between language for communication and language for testing. Well, given that your thesis is that uh, internationalization and kokusaika are not exactly uh, analogous, I'll read out your broad research question and then see if we can get some of the, first of all, methodological and then the results part from your paper. Mm -hmm. So the broad question was, how are the ideologies of internationalization and or kokusaika represented in this corpus? So how did you approach trying to find the answer to that question? What was your methodology? So this, uh, a lot of what I did follows the CDA approach. So it should, I guess maybe I should start by saying that CDA, to be clear, is not a methodology. It's a stance on language analysis. And so CDA researchers very often borrow from a wide variety of sources uh, in terms of methodology, uh, both inside and outside of linguistics. So I was taking the approach uh, recommended by Paul Baker, um, who is um, known uh, mostly as a corpus linguistics researcher, meaning someone who researches large collections of actual language use and generally does that with the help of computer software. Like we're looking at uh, sets of data that are just too big for individuals to analyze. And so he recommends when doing 
doing critical discourse analysis with corpus linguistics that you basically cycle back and forth between quantitative analysis and qualitative analysis. So the first thing I started with was, okay, internationalization is this big thing in Japanese policy, at least since around the late 90s. Do the, sorry, I should say that the internationalization is often used as the justification for needing more and better English teaching. Given how prevalent that is, do the authors of these articles um, include that in their justifications? Because one thing that is nice about the MyShare is there's always like an introductory and a closing paragraph uh, before the author says exactly what to do. They say, what's good about this? So I hypothesized that a lot of the authors would say something like, do this so that your students can become good international English speakers or something like that. And so that was the first thing I did is looking just for that, that terminology, internationalization, globalization, and things related to it. And what I found was they did not use that. It was actually quite infrequent in the corpus. It was slightly more frequent than those terms appear in reference corpora, meaning mm -hmm. just general collections of English language use, but not uh, a lot. So then that finding then what I, I then switched over from the quantitative analysis towards a qualitative analysis that said, okay, those authors who do talk about it, how do they talk about it? And what are the beliefs that are perpetuated when they use that terminology? So in from a large corpus, you narrowed down to where these concepts were used. You then took those occasions where these concepts were found and you analyzed those much more deeply. Yes. And then, and we, if, if we wanted to get into those in detail, we can, but then uh, there was a point where one of the qualitative findings that I found, I found this difference between how two articles um, treated foreign students in Japan, meaning students from other countries studying here in Japan. And that difference then made me think like, oh, hmm, what about the term native speaker? Since that's a big thing in our field of internationalization of English, does that term show up in the corpus and how does it show up? And so then I went back to a quantitative analysis uh, to go back to the whole corpus and see how that was working. And there were there was a couple of times in my full dissertation, quite a lot more times where I bounced back and forth between these types of analysis with the idea kind of, of making a really big, messy picture of many different levels of language to get as much perspective on this corpus as possible. Well, yeah, and uh, you rightly point out that the term native or non-native speaker is one that's become highly politicized and mm. is one that is incredibly difficult to identify people's uh, attitudes towards it um, because it's it's you can't ask it directly so indirectly uh, investigating from the level of the uh, discourse that they choose to share with other teachers uh, is an interesting way of going about it could you give us some uh, specifics on how this differed and uh, whether you thought that this was a fair representation of teachers' attitudes in Japan? So in terms of the, the first part, what specifically uh, showed up? Well, I, I, the thing I found was, unsurprisingly, as a corpus of data collected from 
more than a hundred different authors, there were a variety of different voices, you could say, mm -hmm. um, and different perspectives. There were articles that I felt very directly matched up to the Kokosika ideology, mm -hmm. especially the neoliberal uh, Kokosika ideology, the linking of language learning to economic success, and specifically economic success, for example, not of the students themselves, but of their hypothetical future employers, um, mm -hmm. to the detriment of cultural aspects. On the other hand, there were articles that specifically, or say lesson plans that specifically had students question, well, what does it mean to be part of a, a global environment? And what are the consequences for that environmentally or culturally? So we could see both trends, at least in terms of the thematic examples. But on the other hand, uh, at some of, looking back at some of the quantitative data, uh, another one of the things that I, I looked at and talk about in the paper is literally what countries are represented, meaning what it, both in terms of uh, people and locations. And so I looked at not just countries, but also like if they mentioned like Tokyo, I counted that as a reference to Japan. First of all, most of the references were to Japan, more, more than half of them were to Japan. This is clearly a set of data that is designed for teachers here in Japan, even though there's an inter a potential international audience, that's their target audience. Mm. But when we look specifically at the non-Japanese locations, 65% of them were to the US. And, and to be clear, JALT is not like a major, is not a US majority organization. And I don't know exactly the details and I know that they don't collect them, but my impression would be it's less than half people from the US. And even in cases where they refer to things other than the US, like if, when they mentioned Vietnam, they were actually talking about a US movie about the Vietnam War. So right. this really reinforced uh, one of the kind of underlying cores of Japanese language policy, which is that things which are not Japanese are foreign. Mm. Foreign is represented by English. And for the most part, English is North American English. Uh, just to give uh, a specific from the paper, one of the activities were, was that the students were asked to imagine themselves as employees at a company that wants to conduct a major international project with foreign mm. clients. Mm. And then, of course, that would be interpreted by the person who was reading the reading the lesson plan as being a major international project in English with American clients. Presumably, or Presumably. At, at least with people who are the assumption that if they're going to be speaking with foreign clients, that discussion is going to be in English, which some other research by, in fact, Kubota is not necessarily certain to be the case. It's certainly not guaranteed to be the case that the person, even if you are speaking in English, uh, is going to be speaking American English. Absolutely. And this was one of the things that came up in a conversation with Matsuda Sensei. Mm. And I mentioned the fact that for a while we were using the uh, quote from the 2011 paper, I think, which would be that uh, something to the tune of uh, if an American businessman and a Singaporean businessman and a Filipo Filipino businessman were having a business meeting in a hotel in Hong Kong, why would you, why would the American expect that they wouldn't have to change how they spoke in order to enact the business deal? Why would they, or why should they be privileged in that situation when everyone is possibly a first language speaker of English and they're in a first language uh, English speaking context? Mm. 
And absolutely. In fact, this is uh, currently I'm, I'm writing up a grant proposal, in fact, to um, actually investigate that specific issue, which is how in, in switching from the lesson plans, but to looking at research journal articles in our field of English language teaching, how do these terms, how do these ideas um, get represented in journal articles? Have we moved towards a pluricentric uh, perspective on English language use and English language teaching? And, and we certainly have on the surface, but if we look at the deeper linguistic issues, is that where we are at as a field? Sounds like a hell of a project. I should get in on that. You should. <laughs> to use the word in uh, a kind of different context, but one of the more global issues related to uh, the point of internationalization being viewed as Englishization or Americanization, or I believe one of, one of our colleagues uh, has termed it McDonaldization. The problems uh, with this kind of progression uh, are playing out all over the world, not just in Japan or in Asia, but uh, in Europe as well, when the Bologna process was implemented and the idea that students should take 20% of their, I believe it was 20%, of their courses in a foreign language. Mm. A lot of universities simply interpreted that as English. And there's been a lot of pushback against it, particularly in Scandinavian countries uh, who would have preferred to learn German or who would mm. have preferred to learn their, their neighboring country rather than uh, having English as the kind of the de facto requirement. I've been speaking with several other researchers on this uh, topic of uh, English medium instruction courses. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you think that these courses run into a similar problem of reinforcing this uh, stereotype of internationalization as Englishization. Yeah, and we've certainly seen, I, I have listened to a couple of those and I've seen quite disparate views from the people you've interviewed, um, some of whom have been strongly supportive of EMI and some of whom have been strongly opposed to it. I have, uh, first of all, I've never done EMI and, and I'm not as familiar with the research on it. But I would be concerned with the idea of EMI displacing content knowledge in either the native language or displacing the, the possibility of multilingual uh, learning of non-English. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, one of the places that the field has been moving more recently has been um, even beyond the idea of English as an international language or English as a lingua franca. Um, recently, nowadays, we see a lot of talk about translanguaging. Mm -hmm. um, the notion that it might even be better for us as teachers to think about um, English as a small component in a bigger, bigger language use, language learning context, and that we might want to be encouraging our students to use all of their linguistic resources rather than kind of dividing them up into singular national languages. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about uh, is your concern with uh, power dynamics in the lesson plans, particularly when it was an interview uh, lesson where they, students in Japan would be being interviewed by uh, students from the US. Mm. And although uh, this would, if this were more of a conversational activity, it might not have that uh, issue. Uh, you think with an interview, this is more concerning? 
the, the uh, way the paper was set up was I drew a contrast between two different activities. This was actually one of the things I found uh, was most useful in my bigger project was looking at two activities that were very similar if you in terms of you looked at like what are the tasks students are doing, but then looked at key linguistic differences or key pedagogical differences. So there was one activity where students were the ideas where you would bring students and the author was very explicit about them being US English speakers to the right. point where the author even said, if you don't have them on campus, it's you, what you need to do is find a Skype connection without basically saying all those other international students you have, unless maybe that particular author, their university only had US English students. I don't know. Oh my but, God. I don't know. They didn't, I'm not sure why they were so focused on that. On the other hand, there was another activity where it was also, it was basically the author specifically said having a wide variety of English speakers was beneficial. The more you had, the, the better the environment. They even put it like in almost emotional terms. And it was for me interesting. And, and I, I wouldn't go so far as to necessarily say it is the one is the consequence of the other, but the one with the US native speakers it seemed to be that the US native speakers were the ones with all the control because they were the ones writing and asking the vast majority of the questions. And that may be one thing that's possible is that, that it just wasn't clear because these articles are so short. Um, it's very clear mm -hmm. that some things are deliberately cut just to keep them in the, the length that Jout sets. Um, but at least the way it came across was uh, the Japanese student's job was to be informants about Japan and the US student's job was to be in control and make these decisions. And I found that to be problematic. So based on this study and also the, uh, the quote from your paper that uh, teachers should be responsible for considering their role in possibly uh, perpetuating and thereby resisting official ideologies, mm. what would be your policy prescriptions for JALT or other societies that accept lesson plans that maybe while the writer of the lesson plan is preparing their work that they should be considering I mean along with just saying how many people how long is it going to take what are the activities that they're going to do not just listing those things but are there any things that the that the society should be requesting of its um, materials producers that they include in order to make sure that these ideologies are not uh, perpetuated? In my uh, doctoral dissertation, I ended up with a, a variety of suggestions uh, for things that I think could make this situation better. And a lot of it, uh, there were kind of two separate categories. And a lot of it really, though, was based on what Jalt should do. Uh, I actually felt that a lot of the problems were twofold. They were that the articles were so short that there just wasn't space to do the kind of critical introspection that would have made better. Like there are plenty of cases where I, um, I criticized the authors, uh, both in this paper and the bigger papers, where I said, you know, but maybe the author has thought about this, but they just can't talk about it because they don't right. get to talk about the, maybe the times where the lesson doesn't go as well. And mm -hmm. so I felt that they, the, the readers might be better served by maybe instead of having four short ones, maybe have two longer ones that could go into more detail. And the other thing also is, as you were saying about this question of editing for content, um, one thing that the, the editors that I talked about 
said is that they basically never edited for content. And that this is where we get back to this issue of professionalism and the links between a community of practice and the what that uh, the discourse they produces. Mm -hmm. The editors viewed a major reason for this section of the journal existing was to help the authors, as I said before, helping build their CV. Right. Um, and because of that, they were most of them didn't want to reject anything and not even just for the issues I'm concerned about. They never thought about, oh, is this really a unique idea or is this pedagogically sound or is this discriminatory as the one I kind of let off talking about that led mm -hmm. me into this whole project. And I think that, that all of those things should be a part of the process. Having said that, I recognize that these editors are all volunteers as well. And so mm -hmm. there's a there's obviously a limit to what we could ask, but then just like um, you, someone doesn't get off the hook for saying discriminatory, racist, sexist things just because it would be harder not to, if there is literally no way to prevent that given the constraints of the job publications, mm -hmm. then it needs to be considered whether this is actually beneficial as a genre. Are you saying that the that they were basically accepted as is. Did they say that any had been rejected because the editors felt that they did have these either explicit or implicit biases that the JALT editors themselves would not feel comfortable putting into their journal? Of the editors that I talked to, all but one of them said the only reason they rejected articles was basically like fundamental formatting, like someone submitted a 5,000 word research paper instead of a 600 word uh, activity plan. Right. Um, or, no, that was it. And then one, only one uh, editor said they rejected based upon the, this activity you've pitched is something that every language teacher already knows and it's been published a thousand times. So right. that doesn't qualify as a new novel thing. They all universally said, and actually when I even raised the issue, when I had, for the interviews I did a little later after I'd already done some of the analysis, they, they found it, they seemed to find it surprising that someone would consider that this type of biases or even again, pedagogical biases as part of the decision-making factor for what to publish or not publish. Again, I, I don't mean to, to hold them at fault because this is a fully volunteer organization and I have myself some of the activities I use or I used when we had live classes, some of the activities I use came out of my share, either directly or indirectly. It mm. is a valuable resource, but it I would like to see it just like I would like to see every journal consider these kinds of issues when they decide whether to publish, whether it's a research journal or this kind of um, more practical articles. Moving on, and also this is something that I ask to all interviewees. In the interest of full disclosure, Aaron and I have published several papers together and are currently in the process of uh, another one, I think? Yes, we have one currently uh, being considered right now. Right. You, you don't have to specifically mention having, you know, the ones working with me, but mm -hmm. Even without those, you're a highly productive uh, researcher and publisher. And when we were allowed to go to conferences, uh, public speaker. I know that this is something that you say that building uh, a CV is important to move up in the university business. And I uh, completely agree with that. So do you have any advice for people who are perhaps considering 
uh, going into this profession or maybe taking on a, a doctoral course and people who know that they have to build their CV. Do you have any advice for them to be uh, more productive or to maintain their produ productivity? That's an interesting question. I know that one of the things that several of your interviewees have said is the idea of focusing research and whether that's doctoral research or just personal research or like say grants you're applying for, focusing on something that is important to you or interesting to you, if you want to say it that way, mm -hmm. that there really is a limit to what you can do if you're following either if you're following what say an advisor tells you to do, mm -hmm. or if you're following what you think the current trend is, because uh, the process is long. Uh, and right. it's just so many hours to have to sit at, I mean, it's hard enough. And I'm sure, you know, having done your dissertation on a project you were passionate about, there's still a point where you just don't want to read it anymore. Right. Where you're, you're working on your paper, you're doing your research and you're saying, I've already read what I've said so many times. If you're doing that on a project that you're not interested in, that that's that wall is just going to come so much sooner and maybe insurmountable. Well, I agree. I mean, I've I've said before that it's kind of difficult to maintain your motivation to write a book that you can only guarantee three people are going to read. Right. And uh, and that's just the reality of a doctoral dissertation. Now, if you if you do really well with it, you can. Uh, break it into as you have done and I've done into different papers and chapters and and journal articles and and that's another way to kind of keep it um, malleable kind of maintain a plasticity of the work and you don't get bogged down with it but in, at the dissertation stage I agree with you it depends on the kind of way the way you tend to approach I am for the in in many ways uh, I'm a solitary researcher like the CDA research was done alone but I realized that there were a lot of limitations to what I was doing by mm. working alone but I guess I'd say of course my doctoral research was alone because that's the way the system works and that arguably might be a problem with the doctoral system as a whole um, given the fact that most research in the world is not done alone mm -hmm. um, so um, there were there are places I can identify in my previous research, specifically the places that involved um, subjective coding, where right. I know the work would be better if I had other people, whether they were a full team or at least just someone to kind of um, recode it, um, where I could a lot more confidently say this thing that I think is there, other people independently also think is there. So now it's more persuasive to say this is kind of a common theme. And so looking for people that you can work with even if you're like me, who's naturally inclined to work alone, it makes this the potential for a far more robust project and findings uh, when you're working on a research team. So what you're saying is that your experience of working with me hasn't completely put you off the idea of working with, pe with other people. It has not, although uh, I am still highly selective about who I work with, and, and I have uh, been lucky enough to work with you on uh, the work on internationalization and, and of English and things like that. And I, I'm very pleased with what we've been able to do together. Okay, so to finish, what would be, so you've mentioned that you have a research project that you are applying for, and I wish you the mm -hmm. best of luck uh, with that. Um, but if you are not successful, in that. Uh, where are you going to take your research in the future? Are there other um, corpora that you might think of applying this methodology to and seeing if you can uh, assist 
with, as you say, resisting ideologies that you don't think should be perpetuated? Um, one thing I've, I've been toying with is the idea of moving away from um, specifically ELT uh, work. Uh, quite CDA research is very often used on um, media analysis, especially mm -hmm. analysis of news and policy documents. And I've wondered if I could take some of the things that I felt I developed methodologically speaking and apply those to other uh, contexts. Uh, where that would go, it would be a, a key of finding like a good topic that would be worthwhile. Um, one of the, the difficulties of doing this, this project, these kinds of projects really is, is not the analysis, but it's just the, the data preparation, mm. um, the, the work that you have to do to, to make these texts machine readable effectively because mm. um, every software has its idiosyncrasies. And so it's knowing that if I want to tackle a project, it requires a strong commitment to specifically that project. It's, it's a pretty tough field to just kind of dabble in something. Yeah, it's one of those things where when I'm putting together an idea for a study and, and the methodology, I know what the best methodology is, but you really have to knuckle down and say, I know how much work this methodology is going to, to be. Does it matter to me enough to do the work? Because a more recent project that I was doing that was qualitatively analyzed mm -hmm. um, involved a lot of interviews uh, with uh, students at the university. I was investigating teaching assistants mm -hmm. and knowing that you'd have to spend the time interviewing, then spend the time transcribing then putting it into the software, then tagging, coding, creating the code structure, and then recoding it to make sure you've got it uh, the right way around. And then finally, you hit a button and oh, there it is. Um, right. And so the actual analysis took an afternoon, but hmm. the preparation took about a year and a half. Right. So the same thing there where now in your project, if you say you're like, okay, I found something really interesting about say, I think I assume you're, this was a Japanese based project. Yes, it was. You could say like, oh, well, how does that compare to other countries? Mm -hmm. And then like the idea of like, well, yes, that would be an extraordinarily useful study that would take several years worth of work and multiple researchers in multiple places. It's not just something where you could just collect the data and then just run it again and look for new themes. So I wish all researchers out there who are listening to this, uh, the best of luck with whatever you're going through now. And hopefully this uh, conversation has uh, helped to reinforce the fact that uh, even if you are working alone, you are not alone in the world. So good yes. luck to you all. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much, Aaron. And uh, good luck with your application. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.